0: It was like having the Nautilus, being on board the Nautilus and being able to go anywhere in the ocean uh, and look at anything. This is Parsing
1: Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science as told by the researchers
2: themselves. I'm Doug Lay. And I'm Ryan Watkins. As a formal scientific discipline, archaeology diverged from the study of antiquities in the 17th and 18th century. While it's typically associated with this study of the far distant past, the field is equally suited to recovering and analyzing objects from contemporary times as well. In the first of this two-part episode, we're joined by PJ Capilotti from Pennsylvania State University's Abington campus. He'll talk with us about his research into the archaeology of the recent past, chronicled in his new book, Adventures in Archaeology, which collects over a dozen writings which he published over the past 25 years, along with several news stories from his expeditions. Here's Pete Capilotti.
0: My name's Pete Capilotti. I teach anthropology at uh, Penn State at their Abington College outside of Philadelphia, and I've been here for uh, 22 years now. And a couple of years ago it occurred to me that I'd been doing archaeology for too long and I it was time to sit down and put together a collection of articles and when I got to the publication process my uh, editor at the University of Florida Press uh, Meredith Babb said uh, why don't you tell us how did you get into this make it more autobiographical and it got me to thinking when did I start thinking about these things and I keep pushing that time back in the book I write about Growing up in Whitman, Massachusetts, and there was a restaurant, there was a theme park there, a restaurant my mother worked at, a theme park we went to as, as children, uh, all of that's gone now. But finding a castle in the forest or finding an old car in a field has, has always drawn me very strongly. Or here in, along the Delaware River in Pennsylvania, finding old cars along the Delaware uh, in the mud banks, uh, which you often do, has always not only drawn me to archeology, span but archeology span of stuff that's very recent.
1: Archaeologists often survey, excavate, and analyze material objects from the past to learn more about what human culture might have been like at the time that those objects were still in use. As much of Pete's research focuses on what the tangible objects that people have made, used, and discarded might say about humanity since the Industrial Revolution, Ryan and I were curious to learn how he thinks today's objects might be interpreted in the future.
0: This whole notion of what is the past, what is old, is bound up with what's a fossil, because really until the late 1600s, a fossil could be anything old, whether it was natural or cultural. Uh, y- you could have a, a collection of fossils that could include a suit of armor from 400 years earlier, just like it could include uh, some actual fossil bones. But you know, by 1700, the definition of a fossil as the remains of something that was once alive Uh, has has begun to stick and we only use fossil now for university administrators but I was just at Mammoth Cave in Kentucky uh, and there was a wonderful old grizzled National Park Service ranger there doing the tour and we got to the deepest part of that enormous you know twice as long as any underground uh, cave in the world and the logical question and somebody sitting next to me asked it before I got a chance to ask it but it was a perfect question: is is any of the scribblings on these walls prehistoric and the park ranger said they have found symbols that they think are, are are prehistoric that show something and he described them and everybody in that audience virtually everybody in that audience again just you know general americans on a, on a, on a holiday tour said oh, well that that must mean this or this must mean that or that or that, well, clearly this means this and the, uh, the the ranger said and i thought it was one of the best answers i've ever heard he said you know the only person who knows what that symbol means is the person who made it <laughs> And, And I said, why didn't I think of that like 40 years ago? In 1972, the
2: American archaeologist Michael Schiffer put forward the idea that the original dynamics between societies and their material objects, which he calls their systemic context, differs from the record of artifacts which archaeologists examine. We asked Pete to elaborate on this distinction as well as how it can play out in contemporary archaeology.
0: You're driving a car down the highway. It's in systemic context. You drive it off the road into a ditch and it stays there forever. The moment you drive it off the road and it goes into the ditch and you throw the keys in and leave it there, it has transformed from its systemic context to its archaeological context. And it's perfectly at that point within the purview of an archaeologist. Now, there are a couple of things, I, I think. And one is that what I'm doing now, which is studying billboards on the side of the highway. Many of those are still in systemic use but some of them represent businesses that have gone out of business, but the billboards are still there. We were just driving home along uh, the Pennsylvania Turnpike a couple of weeks ago and there's a there's a silo about 75 miles west of here with a Cadillac advertisement on it. and of course they still make Cadillacs, but that advertisement for that particular brand of Cadillac hasn't been in use for, for 75 years. So is that advertisement archaeological? I think it is. It's a faded ar- advertisement on the side of a barn, even though they still make Cadillacs. And, you know, as, as a child, you drive down I-95 in the 1960s, you saw these crazy South of the Border billboards. South of the Border is still there. It's not the place it was in the 60s. It's been modified many times over. But the billboards uh, are still there in a fashion. They're, they're not the same. They're, they don't have the same Spanglish. And many much of the, the offensive uh, content has been removed. Some of it hasn't been removed. And the range of these has shrunk. In the 1960s, the range of those billboards went from uh, southern Florida all the way up to Canada. There was supposedly one right here in Philadelphia, long gone now. So their range has shrunk like like an animal going extinct uh, to just North Carolina and South Carolina. So that's where I'm studying those now. Within Schiffer's framework, an
1: object is in systemic use throughout its life history from its procurement, manufacture, and use, through its maintenance and reuse. So Ryan and I followed up by asking Pete for an example of how something falls under the purview of archaeology once it's discarded.
0: I'll give you one example that I love. It was on the eastern shore of Virginia about six months ago, and I was stopping at this Stuckey's, which, again, Stuckey's Roadside places have shrunk in their range as well the place where you'd always stop and get you know pecan logs and, and that kind of stuff and they almost they almost market nostalgia now to people like me who are you know almost 60 and and remember those places fondly when our parents would stop so about uh, about 10 years ago when i was picking my son up he was down at going to school in at university of south florida and i flew down and we drove back in his car so anyway, we stopped at this Stuckies, and they were selling these little Stuckies billboards, you know, tiny little things, six inches wide and so forth. So I bought a couple of them and I brought them up and I got talking with the guy behind the counter and all of these billboards now are computer printed. They're printed on these huge pieces of whatever it is, Mylar or whatever they're putting out on these signs. And yeah, he said, there used to be a father and son team, I guess you'd call it, who would drive up here in a station wagon every summer and they would repaint those billboards the stucky's billboards because they were faded from the sun from storms from winter and so forth and that's how they made their living and when you think about it it was it's a kind of a kind of a folk art to be able to paint a canvas that's 53 feet wide and about 20 feet tall and that folk art is gone nobody does that anymore because now everything is done either by computer or here near Philadelphia most of the Billboards that we have here around the city are electronic, and they change every four or five seconds. I haven't actually got out there and stood on the side of the highway to time those changes yet. But the idea of a kind of semi-permanent advertisement uh, that we knew growing up just you know forty years ago—those are long gone, never to come back, at least here in the Northeast. And uh, one of the reasons I want to do some roadside archaeology in the West and the, the Midwest, West Southwest, is to try to. Come across one of those things that's still there out in a field, you know, not electrified and so forth, from the far past, or what I consider the far past, which is <laughs> 1968.
2: Modern archaeologists don't just rely on pickaxes and spiral notepads, but also incorporate a variety of digital technologies to collect and analyze their data. As Pete describes next, this can also include crowdsourcing data from online
0: discussion boards. I can't drive down every back road in the United States as much as I'd love to. So to be able to go on and say, has anybody seen this? Is this still there? Within within forty-eight hours, you're going to get, you know, ten responses. And the people are, you know, bless them are just so earnest and, and want to share where they've been, what they've done. So that kind of throwing a question out there in a non-academic setting, who knows what you're going to reel back in. There's a South of the Border group on Facebook. It's pretty worthless otherwise. Um, Apologies to Mr. Zuckerberg. But I've been able to crowdsource some of this research because a lot of the folks on that site are people who remember the South of the Border, the 60s, truckers, people going on vacation to Florida, and so forth. And so they're always posting pictures taken of billboards that are no longer in existence, South of the Border billboards no longer in existence, as they were driving by, sticking a camera out the window at, you know, 50, 60 miles an hour, and catching this kind of blurry image so when you get a targeted focus group like that you can really answer a question very quickly for example I wanted to know where did the range of these billboards begin and end and lo and behold there was somebody on that site just a guy off the street I don't even know what he does he's not an academic who had gone on to Google Street View and he had literally driven down these highways on Google Street View uh, you know so he see, he never went anywhere but he did, he did an entire field expedition on his laptop. And of course, the, the, the imagery goes back about 20 years. Uh, too bad it doesn't go back 50 years, but it does go back 20 years. So you can actually see the billboards changing over the last 20 years, 25 years or so on Street View and drive down those highways in 2001, in 2005, and 2010, and see the changes in them. And, and he then had graphed all of this onto a, a Google map so you could see the range expand, and then you could see it contract. I mean, this was—I thought this was fairly top-level research. For, uh, I mean, if this guy had been a, a, a master's student of mine, he would have passed with flying colors because he had—he used all of these tools. He had graphed this problem. He had shown the range, the distribution, the time sequence. It was brilliant.
1: Given that Pete's main research interest has been in the history, archaeology, and anthropology of exploration, we were eager to hear his thoughts on the value of fieldwork today, especially since the arrival of remote sensing technologies, through which data can be unobtrusively collected without the use of traditional archaeological techniques such as excavation.
0: We want to see patterns. We want to see human things, and this is very typical of looking for, uh, say, you know, alien civilizations and. I have no problem with that kind of research and these kind of remote uh, ways of doing it, but your your mind leaps to the conclusion uh, of what you think it is, and of course that's why even when you're doing stuff remotely, you still have to go and see it for yourself. I'll just tell one story briefly. It's kind of a tragic story, all, all, all things considered. But I was working on some some TV documentaries with a guy named Mike Fletcher, a diver, a filmmaker, and we were interested in doing a film on the whole, you know, Norse. Uh, visits to North America or Canada anyway a thousand years ago and uh, we, we, we were put in contact with a bush pilot who claimed that about 30 years earlier he had seen a collection of Norse vessels on the west coast of Newfoundland okay but he he wouldn't tell anybody where it was so uh, I was going back and forth with this fellow for months and uh, he clearly didn't want to deal with me. So I, I, I put Mike onto him. Mike is just this wonderful Canadian, which I guess is redundant. And uh, Mike talked to him and he, and he told him, he said, well, I'll show you where they are. And he had been holding this secret close to his chest for, at that point, almost 40 years. Assuming, as I think any, anyone off the street would, that if, if those really were a collection of Norse vessels, then it was going to be the discovery of, of, of the millennia and you would have Viking Disneyland in Newfoundland within about six months. So they chartered a vessel, uh, Mike and his son, who were both uh, you know, world-class scuba divers, went along. They went up from this port up to uh, where this island was, and he said, they're right over there. So Mike and his son put their gear on, do- dove in the water, and they swam about you know, 100 yards over to where this, this was, and they dove down, and they came across perfectly shaped, oval-shaped, Norse-looking aluminum tanks, 65, 75, 85 feet long. To this day, we don't know what those tanks are or what they're doing in one of the most remote corners of the world, but we know they're not Viking. Uh, And the the tragic part of it came in uh, when obviously this guy realized right away that the secret he was holding, I guess on the hopes that it was going to make him all this money one day, had not sunk a thousand years ago, it had maybe sunk 50 years ago. And as they were coming back into where they had chartered the vessel, they were coming ashore. And one of the people on shore says, hey, I hear you found those tanks up by the island. <laughs> so, the, uh, you know, this just magnificent secret that he thought he had had seeing these sights from the air. It turned out that everybody in the village knew about it. And if he had just bothered to ask someone, they would have told him, you know, what he was looking at, that that he wasn't looking at some historic shipwreck.
2: Pete's book is divided into four sections, with the first concerning Shoreline and Shallows archaeology. Among the expeditions discussed is his search for the wreckage of the USS Akron, a dirigible which crashed in a thunderstorm off the coast of New Jersey in 1933. We were interested in hearing how he ended up on a U.S. Navy nuclear submarine in search of the airship, as well as what that experience was like.
0: When we were trying to locate the the Akron, it coincided with a, a couple of things that the Navy was doing, uh, and at one point they were taking the the sub down from uh, from New London, Connecticut, to to look at the site of the Monitor, the famous Civil War ironclad, and so they would they would be passing right by the site where the the Akron went into the ocean in the 1930s. So we prevailed upon them to. Take myself and the Coast Guard historian at the time, a, a wonderful man named uh, Bob Browning, Doc Browning, and uh, so we went on board, and uh, I spent two couple of days on board this tiny little uh, cramped uh, submersible, big thing, but most of that bigness was uh, was taken up by a nuclear reactor, and uh, it was an unusual experience to say the least. Most sophisticated sonar in the world, some of the most sophisticated and high-resolution cameras in the world at that at that point, so it was. Jules Verne on steroids. It was like having the Nautilus, being on board the Nautilus and being able to go anywhere in the ocean uh, and look at anything. Mm. So that was that was a real treat. And uh, the only only downside of course is we never found the Akron for reasons which I talk about in that chapter is it's either has dissolved or there's, well, there's a whole bunch of processes that could have gone on a combination of them a, a, as well, either being ripped apart by draggers and dredgers fishing for scallops and so forth along the bottom or uh, just because it's, it's it's an airship. It's made out of the lightest, some of the lightest metal that humans ever made. This Duralumin alloy that uh, shallow salt water like that, only 100 feet deep, likely would have, have corroded to nothingness. So every time Mike Fletcher and I get together, we talk about this. Because after that whole project was over, uh, somebody, I think he said from the New, either the New, the New Jersey sport diving community or the fishing community down there, sent him a map. And it has labeled on it. Akron records, and it was it was one of the only places of the thousand places that we surveyed that we did not look. So, it, it, for all we know, it may still be sitting there, but it still hasn't been found.
1: Part two of Adventures in Archaeology concerns the transoceanic archaeology of the Norwegian adventurer and ethnographer Tor Heyerdahl. His 1947 Contiki expedition famously set out to demonstrate that it was possible for a raft crafted from balsa tree trunks to sail the Pacific, as he suspected that the original inhabitants of Easter Island might have done when they migrated from South America. As Heyerdahl's voyage was among the earliest forms of experimental archeology, span we asked Pete what can be learned from the method. We'll hear what he had to say after this short break.
0: This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You
2: can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings,
0: or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now back to Parsing Science.
1: Here's Pete Capilotti.
0: I think if you go back to Heierdahl's original Contiki experiment, what was he trying to do? He was trying to show that balsa logs could could remain afloat and keep people alive for for 4,000 miles. And he did that. He demonstrated that it didn't automatically go out and dissolve and sink. And that was an experiment in recreated human technology. It's difficult to do that. With the same, if not impossible, to do with the same controls that you would put on say a chemistry experiment in a, in a laboratory, you just can 't do it because the ocean of a thousand or two thousand or three thousand years ago isn 't the same. circulation patterns will be different wind patterns, the life in the ocean is going to be different. Who knows whether Toredo Novalis worms when they arrived in the Pacific uh, w- whether they were even there before say the Spanish arrived in their ships from the atlantic side there 's a whole host of variables that that you know the whole question of cultivated plants? When did they arrive in Polynesia and were they carried by humans? Uh, and that argument's been going back and forth for, for 75 years now. All of that is intensely interesting to me, but there's either ethnographic or ethnological background of the culture that you are purporting to test the technology of. You can look at you know the, the, the reed boats that hired all across the oceans. Well, you, you don't have to believe that Egyptians ever crossed an ocean in a reed boat to see that it, it's, a, it's a legitimate experiment to see whether a reed boat can actually do that. And I think you're the same thing with r- rafts in the Pacific and so forth. But once you get into a uh, fellow like this guy, Devere Baker, uh, trying to you know build plywood rafts to show that the, the the lost tribes of Israel had sailed from Redondo Beach to Honolulu, you know I think that's pretty pretty obviously a uh, year off into fantasy land at that point. While fake
2: news may seem like a recent phenomenon, fakes and the hoaxes that perpetuate them have long been an anathema to archeologists. For instance, in 1869, the cigar maker George Hall planted a 10 foot tall statue in Cardiff, New York claiming the petrified man as evidence that giants once lived on Earth. Later, the amateur archaeologist Charles Dawson represented orangutan and human bone fragments discovered in Piltdown, England as fossilized remains of previously unknown early human species. Given that archaeologists study artifacts in order to develop an understanding of people's daily lives in the past, we wondered what Pete sees as possible motivations behind such hoaxes.
0: You know, I do this whole unit for my students on Piltdown, man. And I start out that whole Piltdown unit with the Cardiff giant. Uh, And as soon as you have the Oxford debate in 1860, you have people taking one side or another. Is, Is evolution correct or is Genesis correct? And that filters down to the person on the street. And, of course, the Cardiff giant was perpetrated by essentially a guy on the street who had a few bucks who wanted to show up all of the believers in genesis as fools and plants it in a farm on you know upstate new york and and the rest of that is history but that whether it's the the evolution hoaxes which go i think cardiff giant you could probably start there and go right through to piltdown man which was an incredibly sophisticated hoax for whatever other meanings it had those are telling you something about what people think or what they believe or what they're trying to get other people to think or believe uh, and just don't have the evidence to be able to do it and, you know, the legitimate evidence to do it. In fact, I, I was just emailing back and forth with Miles Russell at, at Bournemouth University in, in England who's, who's written, I think, the definitive book on Piltdown Man. And I said, you know, how ironic is it that Charles Dawson, who probably either fabricated these bones himself or had somebody who knew what they were doing fabricate them for him. Uh, to create a fake human ancestor was just a few miles from Boxgrove Quarry. If he had done a legitimate excavation just a few miles from where Piltown was planted, he would have had actual evidence of humans of great antiquity in England to rival Homo heidelbergensis in Germany and Neanderthals in Belgium and and Holland and so forth. So he didn't have to resort to a hoax, but at the same time, he would have had to have been much more systematic in his archaeology. The idea that you can fool all of the people some of the time but you can't fool all of the people all of the time
1: is apocryphally attributed to Abraham Lincoln. However, with the proliferation of hoaxes since the advent of the internet, fooling more and more people seems to have become increasingly commonplace. We followed up by asking Pete of his experience with handling misinformation
0: and disinformation, both in the field as well as in the classroom. It's bizarre that this this democratization of access to information was supposed to make us all so much smarter. and. and You know, this idea that you could get away with something like that was completely conceivable a hundred years ago because you only had to fool a couple people that were important people. Now you have to fool millions. And yet uh, people are so ready to believe hoaxes and things that just are so clearly disprovable. I had a student come into my class. She showed me this this absolutely incredible in, in, the, in the truest sense of that word clip that she had taken from I don't know twitter or facebook or someplace instagram of a baby triceratops cute little thing in its cradle in a, in a super secret facility someplace and, and I said you know that's wholly incredible and I you know god bless her I didn't want to discourage her search for the truth but it was so obviously a hoax and, and, and faked and uh, that it, it makes you despair that at the time when you think that we're trying to make people believe in objective reality, you have, uh, you have people in popular culture, you have our political leaders moving further and further away into the destruction of any sense of a logical positivism, thinking that there is an objective reality outside our own skulls. That was P.J. Capilotti discussing his new book, Adventures in Archaeology,
1: published by the University Press of Florida. You'll find a link to the book at parsingscience.org e38, along with bonus content and other material that he discussed
2: during the episode. Reviewing Parsing Science on iTunes is a great way to help others discover the show. Head to parsingscience.org review to learn how to do so. Or if you have a comment or suggestion for future topics or guests, visit us at parsingscience.org suggest. You can also leave us a message toll-free at 1-866-X-P-L-O-R-I-T.
1: Next time on Parsing Science, we'll conclude our two-part discussion with Pete Capilotti about his research into archaeology of the recent past.
0: You can't study the American approach to the North Pole without being an expert in, in failure. We hope that you'll join us again.